Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going well. How are you, Yoel? I'm doing good. I have a question for you. So I haven't taught uh, because I've been on sabbatical this last nearly a year. You taught this last semester, right? Uh-huh. I'm teaching right now. Are your students showing up? Uh, actually, so I've had excellent attendance recently. Um, and I have some theories about that. One, the, the most likely reason that my students are showing up is that I've changed the structure of my class to punish them for not showing up. So I was about to say, <laughs> is it because you punish them for not coming? I'm not super strict. So like I basically I give them points for coming to class. Um, and there are sort of like 25 regular classes in the semester and I required them to come to 20 of them to get full points. Um, but I've done things sort of like that in the past and had still worse attendance than I'm having now. I'm a little surprised at how good my attendance is right now, actually. Um, I'm not sure what's what's going on. So because I've been hearing this stuff, there was a Chronicle of Higher Ed article, there was a Twitter thread about people's students just aren't showing up like they have a lecture and like, you know, 20 out of 100 are showing up. Uh-huh. And I was like, what's that all about? And I was wondering whether it's literally that they're not incentivized to, right? Uh-huh. They can watch the lectures online later. And they're like, ah, it doesn't seem like that much fun to go to class. I'll just watch them later. Yeah, that's... Um, so I teach also a class, the teaching of psychology class in our department. So I've been hearing how the attendance is for the grad students who are teaching intro psych. Um, and I think they they have ways of incentivizing attendance as well, but they've also said that their attendance is pretty low. Um and I don't know, I had a conversation with my undergrad students recently about this because we talked about the idea of ungrading. Have you heard of this phenomenon, Yoel? No, I could. Uh, my initial affective reaction is negative. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I knew it. But uh, okay, keeping an open mind, what is it? It's basically like decolonizing. Grading. Oh my God, I knew it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not totally kidding. Um, but yeah, the idea is, so ungrading, I guess, in its most lim- like most simple form is having students uh, give themselves grades. Um, and I was talking about this with my students. Um, and they were like, what do you think of this? Because I was asking them. I think it's an interesting thing to discuss. And I was like, ah, <laughs> in its most basic form, I'm pretty against it. I mean, like I'm pro ways of encouraging intrinsic motivation. And I like the idea of having some assignments be sort of like pass fail. So it's really more about effort. I reward people a lot in my classes for coming to class. So it's like not um, as much about, you know, like subjectively grading their work or whatever. Um, but I was like, basically, I think that if I relied completely on your intrinsic motivation, if I was like, you don't have to come to class, I just want you to come out of the goodness of like, out of your own, you know, desire to learn. I was like, I don't think you would come and I wouldn't come. And they were all kind of like, yeah, (laughs) I know that's like slightly cynical, but I have, I don't know. It comes from experience. (laughs) So, so they saw your point though. They were like, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they like, especially for classes like statistics and stuff that really stress people out. I think people do really like, students really like grading structures where they can be rewarded for effort. So if you can like retake a test and get better and things like that, I think stuff like that can be useful. But I think that um, some extrinsic motivation is useful in college, probably. Uh, Yeah. I'm on board with that. I mean, look, it also really matters where you are, right? So I can believe that at Harvard, if you're one of the like 0.001% of kids who get into Harvard, you're probably going to self-motivate. But like where I'm teaching at UT Scarborough, like a lot of those kids, they are not there for love of learning. They're there because primarily because they want to be able to get a job afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, usually that means doing some sort of like postgrad degree, like a master's or something. Mm-hmm. And they're super focused on their grades because they need to get into the master's. And then like you can't just like hand out whatever grade they want, like defeats the whole purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also asked my undergrad students what percentage of students they think should get a 4.0 GPA the other day. And they were like, I don't know, 25 to 30 percent. And I was like, what? <laughs> Oh my God. I was like, back in my day. <laughs> Seriously. I also feel like, I, mean, I don't know, are they just not thinking about like, okay, well, when you're applying to grad school and like a quarter of you have a 4.0, 
that's not going to help you if you have a 4.0, right? Yeah, like, yeah, right. Like at some point, there needs to be ways of distinguishing, distinguishing. people. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. So yeah, I uh, my thought about all of this was I used to teach intro social, and it, the whole time that I taught it had a recorded component. So mm-hmm. like some kids took it online only, but even the kids who were in the lecture section could watch the videos, just stay home and watch the videos. And I gave them an extra credit opportunity to um, to encourage them to come, but uh, it wasn't required. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like by the end of the semester, probably like a quarter would show up on any given day. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's even being generous. So like, I, I wonder how much this has anything to do with the pandemic other than that people put their classes online. So um, we forgot to talk about what we're drinking. We got so excited about this conversation. Yeah, so you're going to be so proud of me today. Even though it's only 12, 11 p.m., I taught in the morning. So I'm (laughs) going to drink a beer. Oh, Alexa, I am excited. Our listeners are going to be excited. (laughs) The things you do for the show. See, it's good to get the teaching out of the way early on, isn't it? I do like that. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. So tell us about this beer. All right. It's made by Pipeworks brewing company which is in chicago um and it's called sea unicorns passion fruit um so it's a passion fruit golden air or golden ale sorry um sea unicorns i guess is just the name of the beer or the beer may have sea unicorns in it i'm not totally sure oh boy i hope it's just full of sea unicorns <laughs> <laughs> let's crack it open and see oh um i'm i i have a i'm a bad beer podcaster again it's just so easy to get wine here so i'm drinking this grenache it's yeah I, at some point i'll just get back on the beer it's just like wine is literally everywhere and it's really good and it's basically free so it's hard to say no excuses excuses i know i know yep this tastes Tastes like sea unicorns, pretty much. Full of sea unicorns. All right, it's that is that a that's a pro, right? Definitely. Yeah, it's very good, actually. Very refreshing. Ideal beer for the middle of the day when you do have a little bit of work to do later <laughs> for day drinking. <laughs> right on. Um, so, Alexa, for this week's topic, you found something on Instagram—the one social media network you you actually use, right? Yeah. The the. Um, Social media for intellectuals is, I think, how people are that, that's, that's right. <laughs> Definitely known as the brainiest and most pretentious of the social media networks. Yeah, so what are we talking about? Yeah, so I saw this um, NPR article that was posted on Instagram a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe. Um, and it was called How to Be Less Indecisive About Everyday Decisions. Um and the article gave some advice about, you know, like making decisions about what Netflix movies to watch or whatever. Um, but it also referred to a, a survey that was done by the APA um, that looked at basically how stress levels um, have been changing some from pre-pandemic to during the pandemic. Um, and so I was kind of like interested in looking at uh, that survey itself and the report that was put out by APA on stress and decision-making. Um, so then we got sort of like into the weeds of that article. Um, so originally when I sent it, I was like thinking um, it could be fun to talk about, you know, uh, stress in the pandemic. And it sounds like we have some data that we can look at. Um, but to me, it became sort of like more interesting to think about in terms of, I guess, the decisions that people make when communicating data to the public and sort of how that data changes so first in the the way that it's reported in the APA report, but then how that then is reported finally in the NPR article. Um, so maybe we could just sort of like follow that um, trajectory in our, our conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the right way to do it. So I, I do think it's, it's super interesting to see, like you said, how this gets kind of progressively shaped in a way. Um, right. And the NPR piece definitely, you know, like you you can write a piece that's like how to make better decisions, but they chose as the, I, I think you call it a peg in the news business. Uh-huh. The idea that like everybody's, ah, see, the lingo, I, I think I learned that on Twitter. Um, the peg is everybody's stressed out by the pandemic, right? Which is a decision that 
NPR made because they thought that the story would be more interesting and relevant that way, presumably. Wait, what does peg mean exactly? It's so like, let's say that you want to write about a topic, you find something that's happened recently and you kind of center the story around that, but really the story is about the topic that you wanted to write about anyway. So it's like Russia's uh, invasion of the Ukraine shows, and then you're like, I don't know, you're like, we really need to get off of fossil fuels. And then you write your fossil fuel story, and the news peg is the Ukraine invasion. Oh, I see. So it's like justification for writing about this thing now. Yeah, it makes it seem like topical and relevant. Okay, cool. Right. So anyway, yeah, you can imagine they had like this how to make better decisions story queued up and they're like, eh, how do we make this make this 10% more relevant? Well, we can talk about it in the context of pandemic stress. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I've heard about that on Instagram at some point, but anyways. Continue. Yeah, well, it's all people talk about on Instagram. I'm <laughs> surprised you've missed the newspeak dialogue. Um, yeah, so this is a survey um, from uh, APA uh, that they did with a, a representative sample, right, of U.S. adults. Actually, they did something interesting. So they have a sample of U.S. adults, and they weight the sample to Ah. make it representative. I don't know much about this strategy. It seems um, tricky to me. But yeah, I guess the idea was that they weighted um, participants in order to make the sample representative. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a pretty standard technique. Um, I'm doing that in a paper that we have now, but only because uh, the sampling quotas got a little messed up, and so we have to weight them to representative. But were they randomly selected, or was it like a self-selected or convenient sample? All it says about the sample, and this is now me going back to, I think, the original APA report, um, is that the survey was conducted online with the United States by the Harris Poll on behalf of the APA. Um, so right. I'm not sure. So it's a, it's a bit sketchy as far as like telling you exactly how these people were selected, huh? Yeah, I don't really know the details. Um, and there's about just over 3,000 participants. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the weighting per se is super sketchy. I mean, that makes sense. Just like, let's say that you don't stratify your sample, right? In other words, you're not like, you know, we're going to randomly sample X amount of black people, X amount of white people, X amount of men and women. Then you would get uh, just some random variability in how much each of those demographic categories that you might care about is represented. Right. And so then it makes sense to say, okay, well, we're going to upweight the people that we just happened through chance to undersample. I think that's a pretty standard thing to do. Yep. It, does, it sounds okay to me, like justifiable. Yeah. But if they're not randomly selected, that's an issue. Uh, okay. So I guess that's, that's interesting thing. Number one is like these I mean, this is APA, and I feel like they ought to put some of this method stuff, like, you know, in a more salient location, and they kind of don't. Yeah, I, I kind of was thinking, maybe I missed this. I was thinking that if I went to the um, actual report, I would be able to, like, get some original materials. So, like, they might have links to data or to, like, the. I wanted to know some things about the exact questions that were asked because I had some beef with some of the ways that they reported questions. And so I was like, I want to make sure that the... I want to know what the exact wording is. And I couldn't find that. Yeah. So the the questions, the exact questions, they do link, although it's not particularly prominent. So I was able to find those. But one thing that I thought was frustrating, they definitely don't give you the data. And they don't really give you detailed breakdowns of how people responded to each of the questions either. Mm-hmm. It's the the report document is still pretty high level. And there were definitely questions that I had about, okay, well, how did this look that you, you just can't answer, I don't think, based on what they posted. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so what is the, how would you describe like the general takeaway? Like that when APA wrote this up, what did they kind of say was the main finding? Right, so I, I pulled something from the the abstract of the report. Um, so- Overall, the report is called uh, Stress in America 2021, Stress and Decision-Making During the Pandemic. Um, And then within the abstract, it says um, that the survey found that stress levels are holding steady from recent years. And despite many struggles, U.S. adults retain a positive outlook. Most, 70%, were confident that everything will work out after the coronavirus pandemic ends, and more than three quarters, 77%, said all in all they are faring well during the coronavirus pandemic. However, and I would say that this is their takeaway, 
and this is sort of how the where the NPR article picks off from. Um, however, behind this professed optimism about the future, day-to-day struggles are overwhelming many. People in the U.S. seem to be increasingly wrecked with uncertainty. Um, and so, the yeah, the takeaway seems to be like people, people say that they are doing okay. People don't actually report much increased stress. Um, they report quite a bit of optimism. But nevertheless, people are extremely stressed out. In the, and then the report is about like breaking down the stress in all of these different ways and um, linking it to problematic be- health behaviors and things like that, which is something that maybe I'll get to in a bit. So I would say their takeaway is um, people are really stressed by the pandemic and that it's messing with their decision making. Right. Which it, it just seems like kind of pure editorialized. Like it's like behind this professed optimism. Behind people's self-reported answers is what we know they are really thinking. Which, okay, I will say like at the outset, I mean, if I were to have done a stress survey um, starting in 2018 or 2019 or something like that and looked at it changing, I would have predicted that people would be much more stressed. Like I have found aspects of the pandemic very stressful. Um, and I know that there are things that, other people are dealing with that I haven't had to deal with, like issues with getting uh, losing their jobs, dealing with kids, actually getting COVID and like, you know, people getting really sick. So it's it, it does seem like COVID introduces a lot of stressors to people's lives. I would have definitely predicted that people would say they were way more stressed out. Um, but the the data don't clearly suggest that it suggests like a much less um I'm much more like a complicated and subtle picture than I would have expected. Yeah, it really feels like they're going in with an expectation, like you said, and they kind of don't worry too much about whether the data actually confirm the expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say like the headline, yeah, you could equally say most people dealing with a pandemic pretty well. Uh, like 70% are confident that everything will work out. Uh, 77% say that all in all, they're faring well. I mean, those are high numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that not the headline? One other thing that jumped out at me is, um, so more than one third, according to the report, said it has been more stressful to make day-to-day decisions and major life decisions. So the exact numbers there are 36% and 35%, respectively. So that means that two thirds said that it hadn't been more stressful or it had been equally that it had been equally or less stressful during the pandemic as opposed to before. I really wanted to know what the breakdown there was. Like, are most people saying the same? Um, are most people saying less stressful, which would be weird. Weird, yeah. Right? And they didn't have that breakdown. But when it's like, oh, about a third think it's gone up, you might be like, well, maybe about a third think it's stayed the same, a third think it's gone down, right? Uh-huh. That's that, that doesn't scream stress epidemic to me. Mm-mm. Right. Okay. So you mentioned this question about everyday decisions getting harder. The question wording that they report in the APA article is like, you know, do you find it more difficult to make everyday decisions or day-to-day decisions? Maybe I should get this exactly right. Um, Sometimes I'm so stressed by about the coronavirus pandemic that I struggle to even make basic decisions. Um, But yeah, I was curious about the exact wording because the examples that they give, do you have do you have it, you yeah, so that's that's the exact item, except then it says parentheses, e.g., comma, what to wear, what to eat. Okay, et so they do give them the examples. They do. They do. Okay. So yeah, does that I mean, first of all, this is like double-barreled because it asks them both, are you stressed about the pandemic? And do you struggle to make basic decisions? Mm-hmm. Um I think that there's an element of being off of your routine where you're like, should I wear real clothes today? That I didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't have that problem as much before. Uh-huh. I was like, yes, I must put on pants. I'm leaving the house. Uh-huh, and right, right. when that's not a given, then you're mm-hmm. like, well, do, are pants strictly required today? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, one of the reasons that I got so focused on this question was that it seemed like people could answer this question um, by thinking about decisions that clearly become more complicated during the pandemic, right? So there are simple decisions that um, that become much more complicated when you're considering, okay, well, so for instance, what to eat. If 
if when you're considering what to eat, you're considering like, should we go out or stay in? Then during the pandemic, you also have to consider, okay, um, would it be safe to go out to eat? Are places going to be open? Um, am I going to have to make sure that, uh, that I sit far away from people? Will I have to wear a mask? Like, so, um, I felt like the framing that suggests sort of like people are so stressed out that they can't even make simple decisions, um, was like a little disingenuous. Like, it seems like people are struggling to make simple decisions because simple decisions have become more complicated. Um, and there is actually a lot more to consider for things that we didn't really need to think about before. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. One of the kind of subgroup findings uh, that I totally buy is that things have gotten worse for parents during the pandemic. 100%. But that's right for the like very practical reason that like school might be closed or you know your kid has a cold and has to stay home and it's super disruptive, you can't get childcare, all of this stuff. Mhm. Yeah, I think that so I would say that my overall reaction to the report and then we can talk about the NPR article um, is that it seems like they are proposing this sort of like existential explanation. Like, you know, the pandemic is just um, it's causing people to feel this. Uh, oh, what's the phrase? This people are racked with uncertainty, right? Um, <laughs> racked. Yeah. And being racked with uncertainty means that, you know, even like simple daily tasks are now challenging for people. And I just don't think it's that deep. Like, you know, the the pandemic is really challenging for people in really obvious ways. Like now they have to worry about childcare. You know, now they have to worry about being sick and being in the hospital. Now they have to worry about getting a new job. Right. Um, so it's this like this sort of uh, psychological explanation that, you know, it's like a cognitive phenomenon that seems unnecessary to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally, that's totally right. And there are other kind of subgroup findings are like really easy to explain in that way too. So for example, they find that things are worse for people, um, making less than 50 K they find that things are worse, uh, for non-white people. And I think that very much has to do with financial stress and uncertainty about like, are you going to be able to do your job? Like these are people who right were most affected by shutdowns. Right. So right? Industry. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like blue collar jobs where you can't just like do it from home over Zoom. So you're worried about like, well, you know, am I going to be able to pay the bills? But that I guess it, like that's not an interesting report for APA to release. Like imagine the headline: <laughs> mostly people are dealing with it fine, except for in very predictable ways. They're stressed out by certain like practical consequences of the pandemic. It's like, yeah. wow, why do we need you, APA? Right. <laughs> yep. Um, there was also a part in the report. Um, this again was in the the abstract where they talk about. Um, you know, behind the scenes, this is what's really happening, right? Behind this professed optimism, they say that um, unhealthy behavior changes are common. Um, but then when you go through the report and you find these unhealthy behavior changes, or the, at least the behavior changes they report on, they say most commonly the changes had been avoiding social situations, altering eating habits, procrastinating or neglecting responsibilities, and altering physical activity levels. Um, so these were variously like endorsed by, you know, 22 to 24 percent of people. Um, but these things, uh, at least from what's reported in the APA report, it's like unclear that they are negative and some of them might even be positive. So avoiding social situations, positive, you know, health behaviors during COVID. Um, altering eating habits is pretty ambiguous. I don't know what that means exactly. Probably it means not eating out. Um which again, could be a good thing, could be bad. Um, procrastinating or neglecting responsibilities. Um, that seems likely bad and yeah, likely due to people, um, people's like work environments and expectations changing. Um, and maybe like increased responsibilities at home. Um, and then altering physical activity levels. I mean, again, it would depend on whether the item wording is more specific than this, but this could also be, this is something that I could easily picture improving because um, 
for a while, there was like nothing to do. And the only way you could hang out with your friends was if you went for a walk or something like that. Well, so that th- that's a interesting one. So the actual item is, how, if at all, has your behavior changed in the last month as a result of stress? Please select all that apply. And then they get a list that includes some of those things that you said. Um, interestingly, it says the the actual item that they could endorse is changes in physical mm-hmm. activity levels. Mm-hmm. So that could mean I'm stressed and I just lie on the couch, or it could mean I'm stressed and I go out for a run more. Mm-hmm. That's a bad item. Yeah, right. Um, so I was not convinced that unhealthy behavior changes were common. You're you're not giving people the chance to say like, well, I do this bad stuff less, right? You know, maybe there's some people who are like, I got stressed, but that made me really focus on my responsibilities because I find that that relieves stress to not procrastinate. Like, where are those people? They're, they're, you're not asking them that, right? You don't know how many people would fall into that bucket. I mean, again, it's going in with a very certain idea about what you're going to find, right? Yeah, things are getting worse. We're not even going to bother to ask about whether maybe for some people they've responded positively. Yeah, like maybe it didn't occur to the surveyors that, you know, people could be answering questions in this way that would be contrary to their predictions. Right, right. It's funny to put changes because, like, if they – if what they mean is, you know, you're getting less physical activity or exercising less, you could just put less exercise, right? Right. Yeah. Changes as a strange way to ask it uh-huh. because it's ambiguous. Uh-huh. So let me ask you, like, do you relate to this pandemic stress narrative at all? No, but I I I think we've talked about this a little bit before. Like I think my pandemic experience was um very luxurious. So um when the pandemic initially hit, I was on sabbatical, um, which is like, I guess, like not really what I was picturing for my sabbatical, um, but also made my life way easier. So I wasn't like in the middle of teaching a class. I didn't have to, you know, transition a class to being online. I didn't have to transition, you know, studies from in person to online or anything like that. Um, so my it was like I had this big cushion when it came to my job. Um, and then also, um, I just spent a bunch of time in my home, which is like a place that I don't mind being. My job didn't change. I wasn't worried about losing my job. Um, I also met, um, Megan pretty close to the beginning of the pandemic. So it was like, really like, I got just had all all this time to hang out with her. It was like really lovely. Um, so I think my experience is very, uh, not unrepresentative. I don't know. What was your experience like, you all? Well, so I can relate to a lot of that, um, which is I I had finished my teaching in the fall um, and then the pandemic happened. Um, and then I was able to work from home uh, after March. And that really meant that I was able to stay in Montreal with my girlfriend And then I taught remotely in the following fall. So I guess that would be fall 21. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to commute in to Scarborough, which sucks and which makes me really stressed. It just was was not great for my my mental health to do that. And instead, I could teach from home. And mostly, yeah, I still had my place in Toronto. I was about half time in Montreal, half time in Toronto. Recorded my lectures, so I did have to transition a class to online. That was fine. It was you know it was some extra work to like figure that out and to revamp the class a bit. But it, I think, I came out ahead to be mm-hmm. honest. If, if if we're like counting the commute time savings. Um, and not having to lecture is pretty great. Like, I think I like making videos more than I like standing and talking for two oh, really? hours. Yeah. Making videos is so weird. Oh, I liked making, I, you know, I, I added little things. Like, it would ask them to, like, uh, respond to little, like, quiz questions while I was talking to keep them engaged. And mm-hmm. I just, like, enjoyed thinking about that stuff. Like, I thought it was fun. I enjoyed, like, trying to make the videos look as nice as possible. You know, so all of that stuff. I was kind of intrinsically, sorry, I was kind of intrinsically into. Mm-hmm. And then it had all these benefits in terms of flexibility, like geographically, where I could be. Like, I would not have been able to spend as much time with my girlfriend as I did if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I worried about my parents who are older, obviously. Um, there were shutdowns and that kind of sucked. We were stuck in a pretty small apartment for a while in Montreal and everything was closed. And mm-hmm. we sort of got on each other's nerves a little bit then. But like on the whole, there was a lot of upside to it for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're lucky for sure, but I don't know how rare we actually are. And so if you don't ask about those sorts of things, you don't find out about them, yeah, right? Imagine- right right? The survey that asks, what were the pandemic benefits for you, maybe in terms Mm -hmm. of geographic flexibility? What would they have found? Yeah, right. Like the pandemic introduces for some people, these great benefits of being able to spend time around people that you love. And then in other situations, like these really shitty divisions, right? Like, I mean, I didn't see my parents for a long time. Um, That sucked. Um, It sucks way more for people who like, um, had a loved one die and couldn't go and go to the funeral and things like that. I mean, yeah. uh, But I do agree with you that I think we don't often um, see people asking those questions, like what were the benefits of the pandemic for you? And I do have, I have other friends who I know it meant that they could spend more time with their kids, which obviously has, is associated with stress, but also, Um, some of them said that that was really like a positive for them, um, and that they spend less time commuting and things like that, which I think most people don't love commuting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does sort of like remind me of our, our conversation, um, that we've had in like a couple of recent episodes about the sort of like strategic use of data. And yeah, I wonder if some people would argue like, it's important to convey the message that the pandemic has been really stressful um, because I don't know, then uh, if we convey the message that the pandemic is not stressful, then it will lead to, I don't know, a lack of compassion for the ways that it's negatively impacting people or um, yeah, it's easy for me to imagine people arguing that there is harm done by like doing a study that would examine the benefits of the pandemic and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Like, it seems it seems better to just know the entire picture. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you're totally right. Like, I, I'm not trying to, like, downplay or sugarcoat, you know, the very bad situation that many people were in. And even if you're lucky enough to work a professional job, but you have many people that you're close to who are more vulnerable, who say can't stay home and who are at higher risk, like that can be stressful just because you're worried about them all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I know people like that. um, But I think it's important to understand the heterogeneity, right? It doesn't, I don't think it takes away from the bad experience that some people are having to say, okay, well, what were some of the upsides? You know, what, what can we say about the groups of people who actually benefited from this and why? I think understanding that is important. And yeah, I don't th- I I don't see that as like morally objectionable or anything. Yeah, I mean, I like I can think of examples that seem clearly beneficial. So for instance, um I was the president of SIPS during part of the pandemic. Um and prior to the pandemic, we had considered doing a more internationally accessible conference. So something that's online and that people can come to from all over the world or like access from all over the world and basically had decided like that's too hard. Um, And, you know, it wasn't feasible. And so we weren't really planning on doing it. Um, And then uh, when COVID hit, it was like, we had to figure that stuff out. Um, So yeah, we've, there were, um, I guess, two conferences that were online that I think were big successes and really did allow for a lot more access to the conference, something that um, that would have been much more accessible than a typical in-person conference that's like held in North America or something like that. Um, and so those are things that like it would be nice to hold on to post-pandemic or whatever that means, right? Like, um, so it seems clear that there are some things that we've learned or changes that we've made that might be changes that we want to maintain. And it would be good to know what those those things are. So you would want to keep doing online conferences post-pandemic? Oh, well, I guess uh, I, 
I want online conferences to exist. So I think it's possible to do pretty cool online conferences that, um, like I enjoyed going to SIPs both, both of those years. And I think there are ways to do like zoom hackathons that are really fun and stuff like that. Um, I prefer going to in-person conferences, obviously, like it's fun to see our friends and be able to like sit at the bar and drink a beer with them. And I, I find it hard to capture that experience, um, online and then having both kinds of conferences introduces challenges too, because, well, first of all, it's hard to have multiple kinds of conferences. And then there's like this sort of stratified nature where it's like, if you're attending in online, are you getting the same experience as somebody who is in person? And that of course, uh, correlates with access in the same way that it, that it did before. But, um, yes, I think it's good that we learned how to do those things and having those as tools, I think is, uh, I don't think we should get rid of them. Yeah. So personally, I grew to, mm, not really like the online conference experience, and I, I was a co-organizer of the JDM pre-conference at SPSP, mm-hmm. and we decided to go online. Um, this was during Omicron, and mm-hmm. we were like, it's just too dicey, and particularly since people were coming from overseas. There were presenters who were, let's say, living at home with their elderly parents who were like, I don't feel comfortable traveling, right? So the, it was just like the easiest thing to do to move it online. Mm-hmm. But it felt like everybody was fatigued with that. Just, I mean, and the talks were good, but you could just feel that like people were done with the format. And that's kind of how I feel. So I I would like to have some room for the online format because I do think it makes some things feasible that wouldn't otherwise be. It enables people to come when they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Definitely if people are poor or coming from far away or both. It's mm-hmm. super helpful. It's obviously much better for the environment. Mm-hmm. But man, I don't want it to replace the in-person conferences. I just feel like it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, I identify with that for sure. <laughs> like, remember that first APS that we met at, which was like in DC or something? Am yes. I remembering this wrong? Yeah. And we like did shots and I don't know, hung out. It's just like you did. That doesn't happen. I know. That doesn't yeah. happen over Zoom. Yep. That was, yeah. Yeah. We would never, we would probably not know each other if, it, if that's right. That that's right. That it was, it was that like random conference. And that's like the perfect example of I, I was a little bit like, why am I even going to this thing? Like I had a talk. I think it was in DC. I was living in Philly at the time. I could have just gone, given my talk and left. And I was feeling a little bit like, oh, why am I staying these extra two nights? I don't know anybody here. This is dumb. <laughs> but then you meet people and you end up hanging out with them. And then, you know, 10 years later, you're doing a podcast together. Yeah, right. <laughs> Magic of in-person conferences. <laughs> exactly. And and heavy drinking. Um, speaking of, um, is it a good time to take a break and refresh our drinks? Sounds good. Welcome back. Um, today, our episode is sponsored by Finding Five, um, which is a tech nonprofit um, web platform that allows researchers to create online studies. Um, it's a little different than maybe the online study platforms that you're used to um, in that it's really well suited for stimulus presentation kinds of studies. So anything where you really um, care about uh, timing or Um, You have sort of like a complicated system for presenting stimuli to users. Um, Yoel, if you were to use Finding Five, what kind of study would you use it for? Great question. 
I think uh, so. A, a social cognition type study, uh, so for example, uh, something that uses the implicit association test or IT, uh, the AMP, which is another implicit measure. Um, even something where, like, you want to do a trolley problem esque study, but you want to mix and match, like, let's say the quantities and uh, the entities involved. Right? Would you push one university professor off a bridge? <laughs> <laughs> to save five, oh, I don't know, frontline workers, right? Um, anything where you want to show people repeated trials um, and you want to conveniently and easily uh, put in different things, stimuli into slots, I think Finding Five is really good for. Yeah, great. Um, so I had a chance to play around with Finding Five a little bit. Um, and as Yoel has noted in previous episodes, I'm not like the biggest tech junkie. Um, but Finding Five has their own study grammar, um, which kind of uses terms that are usually familiar to academics and psychologists and doesn't rely so much on the um, programming jargon. So it's a little bit easier to pick up on. Um, and another great thing about Finding Five is that uh, you can create a study for free. Um, and so you start paying when you want to use the platform um, to recruit participants. Um, but those prices are generally pretty reasonable. So Finding Five's goal is to, they're a nonprofit, so um, they're just trying to sort of uh, keep um, keep the lights on and not their goal is not to um, seek additional profits. Um, so yeah, I think we will put a promotional code on the website. Is that what we do, Yoel? Yeah. So you can find the promo code in the show notes and on our website, fourbeers.com. Uh, what we recommend you do Go make some studies, play around with a study grammar. All that is completely free. If it turns out to be a good fit for you and you're like, now I'd like to collect some data, then go ahead and redeem your promo code. That's going to give you a complimentary one-month pro subscription that comes with some premium features and with 100 free participants for that cycle. So uh, just messing around with a platform completely free, making as many studies as you want completely free when you're ready to collect data, then just go ahead and redeem that promo code, which you can find in the show notes or on our website. Great job, you all. Thank you very much. And thanks again to Finding Five for sponsoring the show. Okay, um, let me give contact info real quick. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, we always are excited to hear from you. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. If you'd like to email us, uh, our show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there as well if you'd like. Finally, finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a sec to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Just helps other people find us. Alexa, how's the beer going? Um, I am conveniently about halfway through this beer, so I'm going to continue drinking this. It's a big beer. It's a it's a big can. Yeah. It's a is that a 16 ounce? It's one pint according to the can. So pint is like a notoriously inconsistent measure, right? Like isn't it different in like Britain compared to uh, Yeah, it's like an imperial that? pint versus a standard pint and I don't know how it relates to ounces. Is non-metric is just fucking crazy, man. It really is. Nobody yeah. knows Give how it, much beer I'm drinking right now. <laughs> no, it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm still on the Grenache. I brought it back up bottle just to be safe, but um, I'm, boy, you know, I mean, we talked about last time. I do think I'm developing a little bit of a drinking problem. The one break on my drinking was that I wouldn't sleep well typically after I drank, but with a Spanish wine, for whatever reason, that isn't <laughs> happening. Like I'm sleeping great. So I have no disincentive. I'm I'm here by myself and I just drink every night alone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is the utility of hangovers, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. They encourage you to do the right thing. And without that, I'm just like, yeah, why not? <laughs> I did get scolded um, by my local friend here for buying uh, wine from the corner stores and he said that was bad and that their, their wine was terrible. So I'm trying to upgrade my wine choices. I bought the, I bought my wine from the grocery store this time, the slightly nicer grocery store. So are you living the party lifestyle other than you're drinking? Like, are you going out to raves and stuff like that? Or are you just like drinking, drinking alone? No, that? no, I don't, I don't, I don't go out at all in the <laughs> evening. So yeah, I'm just drinking alone okay. at home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, 
you know, it's one kind of party lifestyle. Well, this segues nicely into my next question, which is, do you consider yourself a millennial? No, actually. So I was born in 78. This is a little bit of a weird in-between, but I think if I, culturally I'm more Gen X than millennial. Okay. Um, 78. Okay. So that would make you, according to this APA report, you'd be like um, just over the cusp, right? You'd no longer be a be a millennial. So the um, the APA report defines millennials as 25 to 42 years old. Um, yeah, so I'm 44. So right. I would be excluded from the millennial group. Ugh, I was going to ask you if you feel like you have a lot in common with 25 year olds. I was kind of hoping you were going to be right in the you were going to just make it into the millennial group. Um, but that strikes me as a big span. Um, this is really this is not me ragging more on the APA article so much as being curious about how uh, generations are defined. Um, so in this paper, millennials are defined as 25 to 42 year olds and Gen Z is 18 to 24. But that's like a big difference in time span, right? Like one of these groups is like 17, a uh, span of 17 years and one of them is six. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm in the upper end of millennials, um, but I feel like I... I don't have that much in common with a 25-year-old, but maybe I'm wrong. I think of the two of us, you're definitely more down with the 25-year-olds than I am. (laughs) That's really true. That is clear. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a great point. Like, I, as far as I know, these like generation demographic categories aren't based on much actual empirical evidence. They're just kind of made up. And so it's remarkable that they're so widely used because it's such a coarse bin of like, we're going to include everybody between ages, what was it, like 25 and 42? Yeah. 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 That's a that's a big range. It's a big range. Yeah. And if for like a document, this APA report that purports to be sort of scientifically based, it's kind of weird to have this important categorization be just something that's kind of made up. I assume that conceptually they are supposed to be sort of divided by maybe like big cultural shifts or something like that that happen at a formative stage in people's lives. So I definitely think that like there's a difference between me and people who fall in Gen Z in terms of like social media use and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know how you draw the the line really. So it's like, yeah, challenging to imagine how you draw the line in terms of the cultural shift, but then also like who is most susceptible to that cultural shift, right? Yeah. So what's the important cultural shift that that delineates millennials from Gen Xers? I have no idea. Me neither. It's like, I think millennials are just, you came of age around the millennium, but that's just a number two, right? That's not really, uh-huh. doesn't really tell you anything. Uh-huh. Yep. Huh. Yeah. These categories are bullshit, man. Bullshit. Except I think that... Um, any sort of like BuzzFeed quiz that would be like, are you a millennial? They would peg me as a millennial. So maybe. They know <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> right. So, so maybe there's, we're being too harsh and there's something to it. <laughs> so um, another question, not on this topic at all. Would you say that you're a menu maximizer or a menu satisficer? A menu. Um, okay. So, menu changes things. I would say that I'm a menu maximizer, but in general, I would say that I'm a satisficer. Interesting. So why maximizing in the restaurant context in particular? It's easy. Like you can read all the items on a menu and decide what the (laughs) best one is, but in life, that's like way harder. That's a good point. Search costs are low. You're there anyway, right? Like what else are you going to do with your time? Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, so um, what I'm alluding to is this NPR article that you mentioned at the top, How to Be Less Indecisive About Everyday Decisions by Frank Festa and Claire Marie Schneider. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Um, And I would say the general kind of point that they're trying to make is that people try to maximize too much. That is, they try to kind of thoroughly examine all the options um, more than they ought to. And they overthink and that that makes them 
less happy. Would would you say that's kind of a fair summary? Yeah. And then this is like stemming from the the APA article, or at least they use the APA article as a peg or something like that. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's Wow. Look at you with the lingo. Where did you... Uh, on Instagram, obviously, yeah. <laughs> is where you heard about this. Yep. Um, yeah, but so they they they're sort of like connecting this tendency to to maximize, so to like exhaustively look through options and feel really indecisive, to pandemic stress. Um, so yeah, I think that they're saying people are maximizing more than they should, and that this is like a consequence of stress created by the pandemic. I I was pretty skeptical of the premise. The thing that I will give them that I, at least in my life I think is, you know, I've observed is that when you have a regular routine, it makes daily decision making easier mm-hmm. because there's many decisions that you don't have to make because you have a default answer. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that we have less of a daily routine during the pandemic or maybe just that our routines have really been shaken up. So my previous routine was going to the office X days a week, and now Mm -hmm. I no longer do that. Um, That can make decision-making more difficult because I have to establish a new routine or else I never do. And then I'm constantly having to decide on a daily basis whether to put on pants. And I I, I don't think that that's good and that routines are useful for that that reason. So I I think that's a fair point. You look kind of skeptical. Well, I, my skepticism is actually not connected to what you were saying, but I was um, I was looking at the um, the sort of headline um, statements from the NPR article, um, and so they say first of all, um, every everyday indecisiveness, um, and they use the example of like not being able to decide what to watch on Netflix um, has skyrocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. And then they also say, so the next time you're beating yourself up for not being able to decide what shoes to wear, remember that we've been living in an incredibly stressful and strange time. So yeah, my my least favorite part of this NPR article is like this framing that, you know, that this is somehow a consequence of pandemic related stress um, and that somehow like people are just like being paralyzed by um, not being able to make decisions about dumb things, which I don't, I don't really buy either of those things. Um, but something that I do think could be fun to talk about and yeah, you sort of opened the door for this with the idea of like routine and stuff is I think that what they wanted to talk about in this article was like tips for dealing with, I guess, decision-making or tips for improving decision-making. Um, and one of the things that they suggest if you are feeling um, overwhelmed by the decisions that you have to make is to rely on routines. Um, and that seems sensible to me, right? So when you have, if if that's like a goal for you, right? Some people I think dislike routine um, and they like having the freedom, I guess, that would also accompany making a lot of decisions on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, I think that, for me, the routine of going to work every day, I no longer have that. Um, so my wh- the time I spend in the office now is like pretty inconsistent. Um, I always go to campus to teach my in-person classes, and that's like kind of the, the only consistent thing. So sometimes I'll go on days that I'm not teaching. Sometimes I won't. Um, sometimes I come home in the middle of the day on days that I'm teaching. Um, so yeah, I mean, that increases the number of decisions that I have to make. Um, it increases the amount of coordination I have to do with, with Megan. Like there's stuff that like that that happens. Um, so yeah, the idea that routines decrease the amount of decisions that you have to make um, seems uncontroversial, but that, that maybe the more controversial thing is um, like, is that a good thing for everyone or to what extent is that good? Right. So I, I really appreciate actually, um, the lack of routine that I have right now. Yeah. I mean, again, this is all like very upper middle class advice. You know, the people who are like, oh, I don't know what shoes to wear. And that's my biggest problem. Uh, yeah. It just, 
Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 I would say, not a representative group. Maybe they are representative of NPR listeners. Um, uh-huh. So they're, they're catering to their audience there. Uh, but yeah, I, I find that annoying as well. I find this kind of like catastrophizing about like minor life decisions to mm-hmm. be super annoying. I find it to be like very kind of like self-centered and dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, maybe that's part of like why I was irked also by the APA survey, which I felt like kind of tried to reinforce that sort of a narrative. Right. Like staying away from the obvious message of like, oh, it's really sucks to lose your job in a pandemic. And then instead pursuing this message of like, yeah, where our brains are cluttered with um, with uh, uncertainty. And so now we can't decide what to watch on Netflix. It's like, oh, my God, I don't know what to watch on Netflix. Right. It, it's just it, it just seems like bullshit. Uh-huh. Um, and like, I can't personally relate. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's people out there who find this really resonates with them, but like promoting this narrative kind of annoys me, to be honest. Um, as far as the advice, um, so they give four kind of, I would say like high level tips or advices, um, <laughs> which is, um, Pick your decision battles, which I would rephrase that as like decide which decisions are consequential versus not and don't devote too much energy to the ones that aren't. Practice trusting yourself. So try not to be dependent on too dependent on other people's advice. That one, uh, yeah, we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Rely on routines, which we talked about already. And then declutter your life. For example, throw out extra clothes or don't answer emails in the evening. I don't know what that has to do with decision-making. I think those are both good ideas, Uh but I don't really understand what that has to do with making better decisions. So those are kind of like the four, like kind of high level things. Um, I thought that the trusting yourself one really exemplifies what I find unuseful about these kinds of articles. It's, it says, you know, don't, Try not to be too dependent on other people when you're making decisions. It's like, well, yeah, you don't want to be too dependent by definition. But equally, you know, maybe sometimes other people have insights that you don't have. And if you're like, hey, I'd like to invest my 401k in NFTs, and they're like, that's a bad idea, then you should listen to them. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like not useful because it doesn't really like tell you when should I be listening to other people versus not. Like, I don't find that to be actionable. It's like the advice of like, you should balance your work life and your home life. Exactly. It's like, okay. Exactly. What did you think of this advice kind of at a high level? Oh, well, I think that the, so yeah, some of it is like pick your decision battles. I mean, that seems sensible i don't know how many people really are like really are feeling like they're wasting a ton of time um making small decisions maybe that's maybe that's happening to people in which case that seems like reasonable advice i thought the most interesting one was the trusting yourself one i agree that it has the problem of being completely vague and not helpful um but i also have like thought about what this what the best balance on this is. And I think it's kind of an interesting question. So would you say that you, when you're making decisions, do you think you rely a lot on other people? Like do you bounce ideas off people a lot or do you mostly just like do your own thing? Mostly if it's a personal decision, I just decide. For work stuff, it's different. But if it's like, you know, what apartment should I rent or whatever? I'm just like, no, I'll just decide. Is that um, intentional? Like, are you like, I'd rather not get people's feedback or something like that? Or is it just like your default? I guess I just don't feel that I need it Uh and it's an extra step. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't. Yeah. Like, I think I'm pretty, I'm on the other end of the continuum. Like I think that I run a lot of things by other people, Um, which sometimes I, I'm like, maybe I should do less of that because um, I can be like fairly swayed by what other people say. But I generally think that uh, I make fine decisions. I mean, in the things that I um, that I know enough about, I would obviously ask other people for their advice if it's something that like I don't have a lot of expertise on. I, that that seems clear. But um, but I'll like ask people about I think dumb stuff. Like what? Can you give me an example? Uh, 
Well, sometimes I'll ask people like what to watch, but that's that's more just to like get options for myself. What's it? What's an example? Um, the examples I can think of are like mostly bigger examples, so maybe not as good. Um, but generally, like okay, if I'm having any kind of conflict with people, I'll talk to other people about it, and that is maybe not the best course of action so um those people like rarely have full knowledge of like the conflict with the other person and basically always the right answer is like to talk about it with the person (laughs) you know um so like i don't know how much you gain by getting external advice about those things but i do that all the time yeah that's something where i'm like pretty skeptical of like whether another person can tell you something useful because it just giving them the full context is so hard. Plus they're going to be motivated because they're probably your friend. They're going to be like, no, Alexa, you're great. Yeah. That person's just being unreasonable, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. 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 So I guess, yeah, I think choosing this apartment that I'm in right now in Barcelona for two months, that's it. I think that's a good example. So I asked my friend Yuri, like, what do you recommend? Like, are there neighborhoods you recommend? And he was like, yes, you should definitely live in this neighborhood. And then after that, I was just like, okay, what apartments exist in that neighborhood? And I chose one that looked fine and actually didn't look that hard. I was like, that one looks good. Fine. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take that one. It's you know not out of my budget. It seems nice. Fine. Great. And I didn't run it by anybody else. I didn't get anybody's advice. Now, I did learn after I rented it that uh, it does not have an elevator And it's on the fourth floor, but really that means the sixth floor because there's two floors that don't have numbers. So that's a lot of stairs. Uh And like maybe somebody else would have been like, hey, do you want to to get a place with an elevator? But probably I would have been like, no, anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, so I don't know. I I think I'm pretty happy with this this decision-making process and I think it turned out okay. Occasionally I'm like, yeah, I should have satisfied a little less. That has come up for me in the past. Can you think of an example of that? Oh, yeah. Just, you know, rentals that um, like vacation rentals that were just not that great. Uh-huh. And if I had looked a little harder, probably I would have been able to find something better. Uh-huh. I'm very tempted by like, oh, this looks fine. You know, uh-huh. and then um, my girlfriend is much more on the side of like, let's look at every picture. Let's make sure to thoroughly read every review. Uh-huh. And sometimes those do turn up things like, oh, yeah, it's full of spiders. Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, good. Good that we read the reviews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, I mean, when you asked me if, if I was a maximizer or a satisficer, uh, in general, I'm, I think I'm a satisficer. I'm like, okay, this movie looks fine. Like, let's watch it. Cause we could be, we could literally spend the whole night watching trailers. Um, Airbnbs, same kind of thing. So I, I think that the, um, and I think that they do allude to this in the, in the article, the right thing to do is to think about how important is that decision. And when it's a movie, well, it's two hours of your life, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I bought a car kind of impulsively that did not have air conditioning. And I did kind of, you've, have you seen the car? I don't have it anymore. The the orange Hyundai. Also, did you know that it didn't have air conditioning when you bought it? No, I just never thought of it. I just assumed it did. Oh yeah. But, uh, I mean, we're like, what car doesn't have air conditioning, right? This car <laughs> does not have air conditioning. Yeah, I would. I could see myself doing that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know whether I should beat myself up too much, but I do feel like if I had like thought about it a little more, asked a few more questions, I was like, yeah, this car seems fine. It's cheap. I'll buy it, mm-hmm. right? And maybe there I satisfied a little too much, mm-hmm. and should have should have done a little more digging. And I, I think there's the problem is like not calibrating it to like the scope of the decision because the car is something you're going to keep it for a few years. You know, you mm-hmm. want it to meet your needs more or less. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So does that mean that you dislike the experience of choosing between options? So I feel like some people love that. Like one thing that I thought that the NPR article was missing was like, I'm pretty sure that there are people who enjoy just like scrolling through Netflix and considering what they might watch. And like, there are definitely people who enjoy like scrolling through Airbnb or like scrolling through Zillow, things like that. They just like, even if they are um, like wasting a bunch of time or whatever, like the process of just like looking at all the options is enjoyable to people. 
Yeah, for me, it's really strongly moderated by the domain. So I don't particularly care about cars uh -huh. um, or honestly vacation rentals for that matter. So I'm mm -hmm. just like, yeah, it looks fine. Uh, if it's like a tech thing, oh yeah, I'll spend hours reading like every possible review, like considering every nuance. Yeah, it's just like, is it a thing that I'm interested in or not? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I remember having a conversation with Sanjay on our on the Black Goat about flashlights. And is he really into flashlights? Yeah, he was like talking about how he would read all of the reviews of flashlights and stuff like that. And my mind was blown. Dude, he's not even the first person that I've heard about to be really into flashlights. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> I know. I don't get it. But, you know, Godspeed, if that's what you're into. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is sort of nerd adjacent, I think. Like, I think if you're the sort of person who's, like, really into shopping for, like, you know, the right Wi-Fi router, then you might be the person who's really into flashlights, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, overall, I guess you raised a point here in the show notes that I think is interesting. Like, do you find these sort of psychology light self-help columns to be useful at all? Um, I have like very mixed feelings about columns like this. So in general, these are like things that I enjoy thinking about. I like talking about them with other people. Um, sometimes through that process, like I feel like, I don't know, I get some insight or some, like I think about something in a different way. Um, but I also get a, I feel a lot of annoyance reading them. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of like advice that's not really advice, like just like vague statements that everyone can agree with that don't actually give you any kind of guidance. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of saying that things are based on scientific data, but in a way that's like really, um, either like the data are kind of crappy or it's really unclear that the advice follows from the data. Like I would say, in this case, the case of this NPR article. Um, so it's like, I mean, I'm in psychology for a reason. Like I kind of like discussing popular psychology topics with people. Um, but usually I feel pretty annoyed reading things that are in that pop psychology style, especially like, um, especially when it's giving advice. I also might not love being given advice. So there's that. What about you, Yola? I Well, wait, but I feel like this conflicts with your seeking people's input on many decisions. It has to be solicited. Oh, uh, it's like, who are you NPR people to tell me what to do? Yeah, exactly. I didn't ask you to tell me how to make decisions, Frank Festa and Claire Marie Schneider. <laughs> 